You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, while the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey everyone, it's Lauren Lee Chen, here again with my co-hosts Aaron Fishman and Joshua Fishman. A lot of you listeners might have landed here after watching me compete on Jeopardy this week. Thank you so much for your outpouring of support. It was a lot of fun for me to get to represent the NBA community up there. If you're one of those new listeners this week, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you like the show. If you're one of our OG listeners and enjoy our show... Remember to leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out, and we always appreciate it. Now on to the show. This week, we're going to be talking to Kevin K.L. Chenard, who's a digital writer for Hawks.com and host of the new podcast, ATL in 29. This preseason, Kevin had an interesting time at a Hawks media basketball tournament when head coach Mike Budenholzer stopped by and saw him trying to hoist up NBA range three-pointers and proceeded to relentlessly mock and pantomime his shooting form. Hey, Kevin, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a pretty great time to talk about the Hawks. We're just past the halfway point for the season, and the Hawks season has been marked by three distinct periods. It seems they got off to a really hot start, beginning 9-2, and two, and then something happened, and they went 1-10 and 10 over their next stretch. Right now, they've won... 12 of their last 15. What was going on in that middle stretch where they went 1-10, and 10, and how did they bounce back in such a big way? Yeah, it's really strange. I think part of it actually goes back to the 9-2 and two start. If you look at some of the ways that they were winning those games, what they were doing in that 9-2 and two start was they were using Paul Millsap with the bench. So they were staggering the lineup so that when the bench unit came in, Millsap played with them. And at that point in the season, Tabo Sofalosha, who's having a really nice season, he was still coming off the bench. So in that 9-2 and two start, the starters were playing kind of even. And a bench unit with Paul Millsap, Tabo Sofalosha, uh, sort of rookie veteran Malcolm Delaney, that unit was really punishing teams. And so they just kind of needed the starters to keep their head above water, and they were, they were kind of punching teams out with the, with the bench. And then there was that 1-10 in 10 stretch. And so there were a lot of things that went into that 1-10 in 10 stretch. Part of it, I think, is just sort of getting used to Dwight Howard. You know, I think there's some adjustment to playing to his strengths, some adjustment for him, sort of getting used to playing the aggressive type defense that the Hawks play where they want to, you know, blitz and charge a lot of things out on the perimeter. And that's, I think that was a little bit new for him. And he wasn't quite entirely comfortable with that when he got there. I still, you know, all season long, couldn't put my finger on exactly what happened with Kyle Korver. You know, he looked really great the second half of last season, and he looked great in preseason. And then the regular season came along, and, you know, he was pretty good. He was making shots, but it seemed like the units that he was in, they weren't really outscoring when he was in other teams when he was in there. And, you know, I can't really put my finger on quite what that was. You know, I think maybe it has something to do with, with, defense although he seemed like he was passing the eye test there I don't maybe again you know with him maybe it might have been a case of not feeling that whole blitzing pick and rolls out on the perimeter thing and so 
you look at the Howard and the Corver, and then the third thing, really, it's, there's two other things. That was the part of the season where Kent Bazemore wasn't really healthy. And we'll get more into that later. I think you wanted to talk about that later. But that was when I think he was at his least healthy. And then the last part, it was just kind of schedule losses. Um, that West Coast trip, they had a stretch where they had to play five times in seven nights. And the fifth game in seven nights was at Golden State. So there was just a lot going on there. And you know there, were, there was some inconsistency. And they actually played really great in that Golden State game but didn't win it. And I think there was a hangover effect from that one. They lost their next few games after that one, too. Yeah, you brought up a lot of points that we definitely want to touch back on. But what I want to focus right now is on the defense. And you mentioned some of the reasons why it might have been inconsistent during that one intense stretch. But in the start of the season, they definitely looked like an elite defense. And now during their good stretch again, they look elite. They're playing that blitzing way that you were talking about. What are the specific X factors, game to game, that seem to determine whether Atlanta can have that elite smothering defense? Well, I mean, for one thing, I think what's changed recently compared to that one in ten stretch is that they put Cephalosha, Tabo Cephalosha, in the starting lineup, and he's really, you know, one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA, and you don't really have to put any qualifications on it. it he he really is one of the best. And so, you know, with him in the starting lineup, they've been really good. You know, even going back to that 9-2 and two stretch, you know, the starting five during that 9-2 and two stretch was their worst lineup. Some combination of Corver and Howard and whatever it was just wasn't really working there. Now they've got Seth Loesch in the starting lineup. Millsap playing more minutes with the starters. And so that's a much better defensive unit that they're using to start games. And it's not perfect because in opting for more defense, they've got less offense. Um, There are a lot of games recently where they kind of get walloped in the first quarter, and those games tend to be a struggle. They're they're just games where it seems like they they start off in an 11-2 hole or an 18-5 hole. It's not necessarily the greatest offensive unit, and they're kind of prone to falling behind. And then when that happens, Budenholzer likes to go to small lineups to kind of juice the offense. And then those defensive lineups don't really play as much a factor the rest of the game. So one of the things that I think has been a weakness, even in their strong play of late, is falling behind because that kind of alters their game plan for the rest of the game. What a joy I'm sure Dennis Schroeder is for you to watch on a nightly basis. I think we'd be remiss not to bring him up early in the interview. Is there any surprise for you how efficiently he's playing his shooting percentage now despite the increase in volume is up to 47 and he's shooting 37 percent from three and not turning the ball over very much either yeah when it comes to to Schroeder he's he's really putting together a nice season coming into the season one of the things that I was most worried about and one of the things that I thought would be the best bellwether for how the hawk season would go would be you know, Dennis Schroeder and how he did from the three-point line. And he's definitely doing it from the three-point line. He's he's a league, he's above league average, really, as a three-point shooter this season. Because I was worried about, you know, with changing out Horford for Howard and changing out Teague for Schroeder, you know, it felt like a downgrade in shooting in both of those areas. And I thought that opponents might just kind of sit back and retreat on pick-and-roll defenses and, you know, just kind of negate the entire pick and roll offense in that way. 
but when teams play under, you know, Schroeder has this very nice, repeatable, slow shooting motion. It's not going to get off shots in tight spaces, but when teams play the under, you know, he just cranks it up and it looks like the exact same shot every time. Very smooth, very repeatable, and he's making it at a really nice rate. Yeah, I love watching that guy. It's interesting to me what you just said, too, and I've noticed it as well, how he has that slow release because it's the opposite when he's driving to the basket. He's just so quick and aggressive and just goes out just with abandon at the rim. So I I think that's really cool. One thing, though, that we talked about with James Herbert from CBS Sports on our general NBA season preview was the concern not over Schroeder taking over fatigue in the starting spot, but over what would happen with the backup point guard position, that that would be a a bigger drop-off. What have you seen from Malcolm Delaney so far? How's that shaking out? He's a professional point guard. He spent five years in Europe and, you know, basically won a championship in France, won a championship in Slovenia, won a championship in Germany. And then he played two years for Lokomotiv Kuban. And in those two years, he kind of brought them up a level and then into the EuroLeague Final Four. So he had a really successful career in Europe. And it's... It's not a flashy type of game that he plays. It's really an understated type game. What he does well is, you know, on offense, what he does well is he can create his own shot and make the pull-up jumper at a pretty high rate. There was a little bit of a dip there that corresponded with the lull that the Hawks had when they were 1-10. and You know, he kind of struggled a little bit during that patch, too, because I think he was adjusting to the NBA schedule, how how thick it is in terms of games compared to Europe. And I think he had a sprained ankle in there as well. So he struggled a little bit in that stretch. But, you know, of late, he's taken that really successful pull-up jumper and started to mix in the three-point shot. He's like at 50% in January after struggling mightily in November and December, where he was at like 20-something percent. But that's the offensive side of things. And I guess one more thing before we leave the offense. He's not really a guy that will get to the rim. It's all going to be just kind of managing the offense and taking outside shots. He's not really a, a penetrator prober type. He's more of a combo guard where, you know, if he's going to get shots, it'll either be just make it for himself or give the ball up and come back to it later after running around some screens and things like that. But on defense, I think that's really his strength. He's a he's a good defensive rebounder for a guard. He knows exactly where he's supposed to be. There's really no transition at all. Like He fits in seamlessly with their scheme. And then what he really does well is he just fights over screens. It's like really hard to screen him. So you know, he kind of can blow up some pick and rolls that way by you know playing the over or just making the screen miss entirely. Earlier you alluded to Dwight Howard's adjustment period playing for the Hawks. He's having a really solid season. All of his rebound rates are at career highs. His true shooting percentage also is a career high. He shoots less, though. Do you think this is the ideal version of Dwight at this stage of his career for the Hawks? The lower usage, high efficiency, and um, elite rebounding force? I think there's a happy medium, and they haven't quite found it yet. He is shooting at you know ridiculous levels uh, in terms of percentages, but they need to be able to find him more and find him in a comfort zone. They played the Bulls last night, but they also played the Bulls about a week ago. And that was a game where he really found 
good, repeatable, deep post-up position time after time for the first time all season. They don't really use the post game much, and I can understand why. It's not really part of their offense. They're more of a pick-and-roll type team. But they still need to figure out a way to keep him involved just so that he keeps that touch because when he goes too long between touches, you know, it's it's hard to stay involved. Not then not saying that in any sort of negative way. It's just there's a feel for the game that comes with touching the ball and they need to get him those touches to keep him involved and just kind of keep him in his comfort zone. But he's been so impressive. You know, start with something like free throw shooting. Um, you know, he started, you know, in like the high forties. But since then, like over the last month and a half, he's been a 60, 65% free throw shooter. He's shooting really well from the field. He's really putting up terrific rebound rates, especially on the offensive end where he's just obliterating really any kind of offensive rebounding marks that he's put up in his whole career. So, you know, there's still some things that he needs to get used to. Like we said before, he has to get used to when the Hawks want to use an aggressive style of pick and roll defense. He has to get used to moving his feet out on the perimeter to keep up with it. But really, the adjustment's been terrific. And I think that not only does Howard need to adjust, but the Hawks need to adjust. They don't have a lot of people who are terribly comfortable throwing him high lob passes. Um, he's been really good on the lobs, but if you watch some of the passes, they haven't been as successful. And really, that's one of the, the few nitpicks you come up with for Schroeder. But Bazemore's been pretty good at throwing lobs, and I'm looking forward to Millsap and Howard working the pick and roll more. They've only done it a few times, but it looks like it has promise. Speaking of Millsap, today, as we record this, he was just announced as an all-star reserve, his fourth straight appearance. How can you assess his season so far with less help around him? He's everything to the Hawks. You know, in, in the games where he's not around, he missed a couple of games, and they just fell to pieces. I mean, they just... I think he only missed one game last season, too, and it was like a road loss to a really bad team. When he's not around, they really just collapse. He does a little bit of everything for them. He's their secondary creator. Um, So, you know, if they need something created and it's not coming from the point guard, it's almost always going to come from him. Um, When they face defenses that switch, because sometimes that's a pretty good strategy against the Hawks is to to show them some switches. You know, it comes down to one-on-one play. And when it does, again, it's either Schroeder or Millsap that's going to make the play in that type of situation. He's their best natural passer. He's he's has more assists than he had last season. He's been really terrific as a passer. And then just defensively, he's unbelievable. And even more so with somebody like Howard behind him. He can play down low. And when I say down low, I mean like literally low and not up in the air, you know, stripping hands and not having to worry because if he misses it or, you know, if he doesn't quite get the deflection, he knows that in most cases he's going to have Howard behind him. There were a lot of rumors that the team was seriously entertaining trading him, Paul Millsap, but supposedly now they're not. You'd obviously hate to get no value for him if he walks this offseason. Do you think the Hawks are are still considering it if they uh, field a good offer? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they're fielding offers, but you know, I would never say never because you don't know who's going to call you and say, you know, here's something we'd like to offer, but they said that they weren't going to trade him. He came out and said that they said that they weren't going to trade him. So, you know, I think when it came from him, um, you know, I think he got some reassurance to that effect. And again, maybe they said, you know, that maybe they, you know, they said it was definite or maybe they said it wasn't. But, um, you know, 
once it comes from him, you know that there's some level of commitment there to not trading him. You know, it could be that they want to explore keeping him. He's he's really a terrific player and and really the cornerstone player that they have right now. And as evidenced in those games where he hasn't played this season, everything falls apart when he's not there. So unless they're willing to do some sort of complete rebuild, they're probably going to need him. The Eastern landscape, especially the top, is really interesting these days with teams like the Cavaliers and Raptors struggling. Your buddy, Mike Budenholzer, do you think he and the rest of the front office think that a season's team can realistically get over the LeBron James hump, finally get into the NBA Finals? Or um, if they determine that's not realistic, would that increase the chances of trading guys who are going to be free agents like Milsav and Arcefalo? So they're only four games out of first right now, which is crazy to me. Right, and like a half game out of third and things like that, yeah. too. And close I to mean, second, too, yeah. I think if you look at it from the big picture, I guess you have to say a couple of things. But for starters, you know, going back to July, you know, Horford was a free agent when the whole Howard thing was happening. And they didn't know uh, what Horford was going to do. And, of course, they weren't going to know what's going to happen with Millsap 12 months later. And so I think that there was some urge to to have somebody for sure, you know, the two cornerstones going back to that 60-win season were Millsap and Horford. And, you know, knowing that they were both going to be unrestricted free agents in a 12-month span, I think they wanted some some hedge against that. And they signed Howard to, you know, a pretty, I think, is a reasonable contract. It's, you know, it's not a max contract. It's, you know, something that I think fits his value to a team. So, you know, going back to whether or not they think they can compete, if you do sign Howard and you sign him to a three-year deal, if you're going to go through some sort of retooling without Millsap, you know, what's the point of signing Howard in the first place? If you're not going to at least take one chance at it with the player that you pictured being beside him, which who is Millsap? If Millsap is to go away and you've got Howard on this three-year deal, unless you do something with Howard, Howard doesn't really necessarily fit this team going forward. I think if Millsap's not there. So you know, I think they want to at least take one chance at it. It's funny when you look at the East because I think that Boston might be a bad matchup for them. If there's a Boston-Atlanta uh, series, you know, Boston might have the upper hand in that type of series. Um, they've looked really good against the Hawks this season with Horford. But at the same time, you, know, you look at matching up with Cleveland, and I think that Boston would have a heck of a time trying to keep up with Cleveland. And I think that the Hawks, you know, using a Millsap-Howard Cephalosha front court, can do some things to slow the Cavaliers. I mean, I think they've kind of made a team specifically with the goal in mind of trying to do something to the Cavaliers. And who knows that you know, even if the Hawks get were to get that far in the playoffs, would the Cavaliers even be there? I don't know. And if you were to beat the Cavaliers, could you beat a team like San Antonio or Golden State with this Hawks roster? You know, probably not. I, I think that having a player like Horford would be a better fit for trying to beat a Golden State type team. So, I don't think that this particular Hawks team is built for the regular season. I think it's built for the postseason. I think it's kind of this 47 wins and and slog through some seven-game series type of team. And, you know, I I think that they would have a shot against Cleveland, but I don't know that they would get that far. I don't know if Cleveland would get that far. And I don't know what they could do, you know, beyond that. But it's a reasonable chance, and I think they want to have at least one shot with Howard and Millsap together, because otherwise the whole Howard signing doesn't necessarily make all that much sense. 
I agree with that sentiment. I don't think it would make sense to blow everything up in light of how well they're playing lately and how close now they are to the top of the East. I mean, the two X factors that we really don't know about are, you know, what kind of conversations take place between ownership and team management, and then what kind of conversations take place between team management and Paul Millsap's representation, you know, if they have a feel for what he's going to want or, you know, how likely it is he might stay or what it is that ownership wants. True. You know, these are yeah. all conversations that we're not privy to. And then right. on top of that, you know, we don't really know what type of offers that they got from Millsap. If they were looking at these offers and, you know, it was going to amount to an average player and a late first round pick, that's probably not enough to give up Millsap if you think you have a shot of keeping him and you think you want to keep him. Right. And also another thing that we have to factor in is as bad as Cleveland has looked lately, every year a LeBron James-led team has made the finals, it seems like. I think seven straight, something like that. And so a lot of times they just mess around, slack off or whatever, and then figure it out when the time comes. So a lot of factors go into these big decisions as much as we'd like to see Paul Millsap say. But a trade they did make, you referenced it earlier, the Kyle Korver, Mike Dunleavy Jr. one. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Dunleavy Jr. is no Kyle Korver, and the team is still integrating him into the offense. So we're not seeing a great deal of production from him. But what can we realistically expect from him contributions-wise? And is there anything that he does better than Korver, you think? I think he moves without the ball a little better than Korver. Corver wasn't really a guy who made cuts to the rim. So Corver was a great shooter. He was great at moving without the ball, but moving without the ball in sort of a rotational sense where he's kind of slicing around the perimeter or making curl cuts and things like that. What Dunleavy can do is, you know, he can make the curl cuts and he can shoot. But one thing that he does better than Corver is if he gets a guy with his head turned, He's good at making that dart to the rim and a little bit longer than Korver. We can kind of just catch and finish and, and not get his shot blocked. So I think he's better at making the cuts without the ball towards the rim than Korver was. Now with Korver gone, Tim Hardaway Jr.'s role is expanding even further. He's having a great season off the bench, shooting almost five threes per game. What do you think he's improved on most this season? It's tricky because it doesn't seem like something that you would say of a three-point shooter and somebody whose three-point shooting and scoring ability seem to have gotten better but I think he's he's in better shape and that sounds bad because that implies like he's out of shape I think he's like in superhuman shape whereas you know last year he was in pretty good athlete shape he's shown the ability that if he pumps fake somebody out on the perimeter it's you know two bounces two steps and he's going above the defense Um, He's shown really great bounce, really great elevation. And so I think that where he's gotten the most improvement is in his athleticism. He's been really great at scoring without the three-point shot. You know, if you look at his field goal percentage on two-point shots, it's been been terrific. The three-point shot, you know, he's getting a good volume and a pretty good percentage. And I think it's gone up over the course of the season. But earlier on, especially in that one and ten stretch, he, like the rest of his teammates, was struggling a little bit. And I think maybe one thing that he can get a little bit better at, uh, or maybe two things he could get a little bit better at, he was pretty aggressive on defense last season. And I don't know if he's had that 
exact same level of defensive intensity this season. It's hard to say. I mean, I think I need a little bit bigger sample. It's especially hard for bench guys to see them in enough minutes to really know that. But he was pretty impressive last season defensively, and I, I he might have dipped just a tiny bit this season. And then the other thing is he needs to play with the pass a little bit more on offense. If you watch the Hawks offense, you know, there'll be all these plays where it's, you know, pass, 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 four passes in five seconds, and somebody's getting a wide-open jumper. He tends to want to be a little bit more of a solo artist, and so he'll take some possessions where it's just he has the ball, he takes the shot. And I think he'll see that if he keeps that ball moving and keeps himself moving when it's not in his hands, it'll come back to him for an even better shot. You touched upon this earlier in this episode, but earlier in this season, when Kent Bazemore was dealing with his injury, it really seemed like one thing it affected was his shot above all else. His percentages were way down from the field and from three. It seems like he's been much better over his last eight games, though. He's scoring almost 18 points per game on 47% shooting about. Do you think that he's finally gotten over that and turned the corner, or are there still issues there? One of the things that he said recently, and it caught me a little bit by surprise, and I've got to be careful that I get the phrasing correct, but I think if I paraphrase it correctly, he said something to the effect of, I missed about eighty I missed about 85% of the summer for body maintenance, is how he phrased it. And so I think he had a summer where he didn't get to do as much training as he would have liked. I mean, I don't recall there being any injury reports or anything like that for him this summer. But he's saying now that that he missed a lot of time this summer that he would have liked to have been getting ready. And then there was a part of the season where he missed a week for a right knee injury. I think it was reported as right knee stiffness or something like that. And he was wearing a sleeve and things like that. And he didn't seem to have that same vertical bounce. But at the same time, he's an emotional player. So, you know, when he was injured like that, I think it was a struggle for him just because, you know, he has that tendency that when things are going well, it's going to wind him up and it's going to keep him going well for a while. But if there's a struggle, he's going to push himself or press a little bit. And so I think he pressed a little bit in that stretch where he wasn't feeling as well. I'm still not convinced that he has the same bounce that he had last season. Um, I think he's still kind of building towards full health, but he's been a fantastic defender. It's like a cerebral approach to defense because even if he hasn't had the same explosiveness, and you can see that, that lost explosiveness on offense, it hasn't changed his approach to defense where he's been tenacious in some very terrific bench units. Alf Horford, who we've mentioned a lot this episode, He was a mainstay with the Hawks for so many seasons. He joined the team at 21 when the Hawks drafted him out of Florida, and he left last offseason for Boston after nine years with the team at 30 years old. We've already discussed the contributions of Dwight Howard and how Paul Millsap may have stepped it up, but how much do you think he's missed on the court for the Hawks and off the court by the fan base and you personally? I think you know, he's a, a steadying presence. One of the things that Corver said at the beginning of the season, he's, and of course now Corver's not even here, but Corver said that he thought that the way this Hawks roster was set up this year compared to last year is that there were more fiery guys, and he thought that there would be more ups and downs. And Corver actually put a spin on that where he said, I think it's actually going to be a positive that this is 
an emotional group that that can reach some pretty high highs, even if there are some some lows mixed in. You know, Horford is the exact opposite of that. Horford is is a steady burn. You know, he's he's got that raging competitive spirit, but it's just kind of leveled out over the course of the season where he's not going to get into those highs and lows. And so it it's it's hard to miss that consistent, professional, talented approach that he brought to the game. And you know, that goes on and off the court. You know, he's a he's a steadying presence on offense. You know, he's a steadying presence on that defense, especially for some of those, uh, like we said, the aggressive type trapping style defenses that the Hawks like to use. And he was a steadying presence in the locker room, too, I would suspect. You know, as far as on the court, where they miss him a little bit, I think is, you know, in terms of spacing the floor, things tend to get a little bit clumpy with the the five-man unit that they're currently starting. Cephalosha isn't uh, a great shooter. Howard's doing everything near the rim. Millsap is okay as a shooter, but you know there really aren't that many great shooters in that starting lineup. Even if you know Bazemore and Schroeder have things going, it can get a little bit tricky. So I think they missed that spacing, and early in the season, one of the problems they had because they didn't have that spacing was turnovers. They were turning the ball over a lot. You know, swapping out Horford and Teague for Schroeder and Howard, you knew that the Hawks were going to turn the ball over more, partly because of the the two players going in and out, but also just because the overall spacing wasn't going to be there. So there were going to be more defenders in a tighter space, and that was just going to be more turnovers. Kevin, we've gained so much insight from you tonight. We just have one last question. Sure. The big big sports story around Atlanta at this time (laughs) is obviously the Falcons headed to the Super Bowl, and Atlanta also has a longtime love for the Braves, their baseball team who had so much success in the 90s and 2000s. The Hawks might right now be a little bit behind those two. Currently in the NBA, they've ranked 23rd in attendance. What do you think the franchise can do to sort of climb up that ladder in Atlanta sports fandom and work to bring more fans into the fold? You know, I I think winning is is really the thing that, that, that cures that. You know, if you look back at that 60 win season, they, you know, once things got rolling there, they really didn't have any, any trouble getting the, the fans to come out for that. And obviously, you know, fans are going to come out for a winning team, but I think at the same time, you know, there is some level of winning that is required to keep fans interested. If you win at a certain level, that's almost like a, a hall pass for a couple of years where that attendance is still going to be there. And if you win a, a couple of times in a decade, that's really going to keep the fan interest high over you know a much longer period. So I think if, if they put together something that, that gives fans hope that, that there's a team that might be able to win something, then the fans will come out to it. It's, it's tricky. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that the Braves are moving. Right now, the Braves, Falcons, and Hawks are all pretty close to the downtown. And the Braves are up and moving northwest. Uh, I'm not sure how far it is by miles, maybe 12, 15 miles from where they are now. But by time and rush hour, it's like an hour and a half. <laughs> so there might be this demographic shift where the, the Braves suck in some fans up where their new home is going to be, but the Hawks and Falcons kind of fill in that vacuum behind them a little bit. 
Yeah, and at least the Hawks will always have the great Oregon player, Sir Foster, at their games, right? <laughs> at Phillips. Yeah, I mean, there's really a good product in terms of the arena experience, the social media presence, the in-arena entertainment. I mean, I think there are a lot of peripherals that are in place to give fans a great product. But ultimately, you know, what fans want is they want to have hope. They want to have hope in a team that they think can do something. And, you know, for some teams that are at the bottom of the NBA right now, it might be that young player that they picked in the lottery that's their hope. But, you know, the Hawks haven't really gone that route. They have more veteran lineups. So when you have that situation, you want to have hope that it can do something in the playoffs. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to have you on. And hopefully we can get you back again sometime. Sure, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.